the JTAC podcast, episode 34. Send it. I can do that. JTACs. Clearing it hot, making it rain, and bringing the boom boom. So, welcome everybody to episode 34 of the JTAC podcast. Uh, reached out to one of my uh, European brothers, Pierre. Me and him uh, met on a, at a course. I'm sure we'll get onto that at, uh, at some stage here. Pierre, I really appreciate you taking the time and uh, coming on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Welcome. Um, just uh, so everyone's tracking, everyone's opinion on here is their own and not that of any organization. Um, Pierre, could you just sort of take us back to the beginning then? Uh, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? What was like family life like for a young Pierre before he decided to join the service? Right, so I'm, uh, I'm Pierre from uh, Belgium. So uh, military-wise, my family, I had a grandfather who was a, uh, a police officer in a smaller district in the uh, southern side of Belgium. And uh, my father was uh, also in the military. So he was the, uh, an artillery guy and uh, he ended up as a uh, battalion commander from the uh, air defense on the uh, Gepar. So not really good stuff for a JTAC, right? But, uh, mm-hmm. Uh, I lived mainly in Germany until uh, I was uh, 16. And then as from uh, 16, I stay uh, at school in Belgium and uh, just rejoined the rest of my family in uh, Germany every weekend. And uh, while I was in school, I was in the uh, Catholic uh, schoolhouse. I decided already uh, when I was uh, 17 to join the army. That was uh, my plan. And I decided to, uh, to enter the armed forces after my... Uh, my my basic uh, school, I would say, at the, the age of 18. Uh, and then uh, I joined the army when I was 19, basically, because I, I grew up one year at school, so <laughs> that happened to everybody, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's out, it becomes a very uh, familiar story. What yeah. was... So uh... I, I joined... Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. So I joined at uh, 19, and uh, I started as an NCO. Uh, I did uh, my uh, NCO uh, education in the uh, School of Infantry, and I started basically as a... Uh, student pilot for the uh, helicopter. So that was the uh, first stage, what, just after graduate from the infantry schoolhouse, I got the, the uh, I did the selection and I went to the, uh, uh, what we call light aviation, uh, rotary wing uh, pilot uh, training. And uh, I start on the uh, Marchetti SF-260, it's a small uh, single prop uh, engine aircraft. And uh, I start there and I would say roughly after 15, 16 hours, it was not, uh, my, my, my piece of cake, I would say, my, my cup of tea. I had some uh, issues getting a good balance between uh, the, thing, the, the, the stuff that I need to uh, keep in mind and basically flying the aircraft. So uh, after that, so I stayed at the, uh, at the uh, aviation schoolhouse for about uh, one and a half year. And then uh, yeah, I had to take a decision. So I joined the uh, uh, airborne unit. So I went to the uh, second airborne battalion in, uh, in Namur, in the center of Belgium. And I stayed there and I just passed all the different levels you have to do as an NCO in Belgium. So uh, section commander, uh, platoon commander, and then I got a couple of staff functions. And uh, I would say I stayed there. And uh, in uh, 1999, we went to uh, Albania. It was just the beginning of the uh, Kosovo crisis in the uh, Balkans. And I had a chit chat with the, one, of the, uh, one of the officers who has a... In fact, he was a folder controller. He did his uh, training in the old uh, German schoolhouse, uh, Fürstenfeldbruck in Germany. 
But it was basically, yeah, they didn't get that much training, he told me. And in the same time, there were discussions to have a new schoolhouse between Belgium and Netherlands, uh, putting the effort together and uh, to build up a new, yeah, basically a new content for JTAC. So we were still talking about fact by then that we were looking for a new, a new structure and a new content of the course. And basically everything went also, technology was a little bit uh, better. We start working with GPS, with range finders, smart weapons on, aboard, on board the jets. And uh, I was in uh, Kosovo then, and uh, on the French side in Belgium, we have a lot of people that have problems speaking English. And so one of my uh, commanding officers asked me, are you interested to, be, to become a JPAC? And tell me, you need to go to the Netherlands to, be, to follow that course. So it was in 99. So when you look now, uh, I, I, I became a JTAC in 99. So it's approximately 20 years, more than 20 years than uh, JTACing. Uh, and basically next year I will retire also. So, <laughs> so next year, by, by, by October next year, I will, I will retire after 37 years of service. Wow. Just to, just career. But when I, went, when I became a JTAC, the big change was... Uh, Due to the currency requirements in the training, because we were, we were few JTACs by then, and the Air Force was eager to have us the training, uh, my my boss by then, my uh, battalion commander, says to me, "You know, it, it's pretty hard to put you in a decent function." And we didn't have any JTAC function in the uh, battle order of the the order of battle of, uh, of the battalion by then, and the SF group from uh, Belgium. Uh, the S3, which was a former uh, captain I met uh, previously on different uh, occasions, asked me if I wanted to, do, to join the SF group to start building up a JTAC capability there. And so, as from uh, 2001, I joined, 2002, I joined the uh, SF group, and I stayed there until uh, 2009 when I get promoted to a WO2, and, and luckily there were no more functions for me there, and uh, they said, okay, you have to move. So I did a tour of uh, three years in uh, the uh, uh, HQ in Brussels from the Belgian Defense Force. And I stayed there for three years in the uh, uh, land component 3D JTAC section. And after that, uh, luckily, I went as a ground liaison officer in a squadron. And so that's my uh, post right now. And I will stay there until last next year. So I'm basically a ground uh, liaison officer in a 350 F-16 squadron. I'm still a JTAC IE. I'm still current. I did uh, my last eval probably uh, two weeks ago when we start resuming ops after this uh, COVID-19 uh, uh, restrictions, and uh, I'm still enjoying it. Yeah, I, uh, that's quite a, a canter through uh, you know almost thirty something year, years of your life. What is what does it look like as a as a young man in Belgium? Obviously, you've got a family history of people joining the military. Um, what does that process look like when you walk down to a recruiting office and, you know, sign on the line? I know obviously the guys in each of their sort of countries understands it. And it is amazing how different it is. What's it like over there to like that startup process and sort of like the boot camp element of it? Do you do a, a short period before you step into that aircraft and start flying of soldiering? Yeah. So basically uh, things have changed a lot. Uh, we had military service until the uh, 1994. We had the mandatory military service, then they, they withdrew it. And uh, so basically, you know, we have only people joining the armed forces. And if you join the armed forces to become uh, NCO, soldier, pilot, uh, whatever, 
two options. We have uh, what we call the military academy, which is basically a cycle from, I would say, 18 to 22, and you do just basic military training to get the, uh, the licensed uh, uh, diploma, I would say, and then you start doing your career. But I mean, I mean, everybody joined the armed forces. We'll start with what we call basic training, which is, I would say, roughly five to six weeks basic training. So being a rifleman, I would say, and then as from there, you will, uh, you will go to the uh, specifics if you want to become an NCO, or if you want to maintain, become a soldier or corporal, or uh, if you want to become an, an officer. The thing is that we, we don't have that same interest in the civilian population that uh, you have in the UK or the US have. So we used to have in the past cadet schools. So people are joining the, uh, uh, yeah, the cadet schoolhouse and the NCO cadet schoolhouse us from 15, if I'm not mistaken, and us from there, they did the last part of the uh, schoolhouse education in a military environment, so which was probably, my point of view, much better. And then they joined further on to become an NCO or they joined the military academy. These days, basically, we have people coming from the civilians. They just went to the uh, recruit center or to the uh, uh, army defense houses we have in different cities. They just go there. They have some uh, interviews. Uh, they get some uh, some directions based on their uh, uh, experience. But uh, yeah, basically, they, they don't have the ability to train. And the main issue we have is, I would say, we have roughly, I'm not sure about the numbers, but we roughly have, let's say, 50% of people joining the armed forces willing to become a soldier or an NCO or an officer. And then after three, four, five, six months, they said, okay, we stop. And also what we noticed the last years is even after, so we, we got those, uh, we had a lot of operations in the past. We have a lot of operations in Africa, Afghan, uh, Middle East, and now we have less and less operations. And the last operations currently we have is mainly in Africa and people guarding museums and doing uh, guards of uh, uh, airports and stuff like that. And we have a lot of demotivation as well. So plenty of uh, officers, NCOs, basically who signed initially to become a career uh, membership of the armed forces. They just said, okay, we leave because you know, I'm, I didn't join the army to be a guard in front of an airport. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of that going on around the whole, the whole, whole community, the whole world where, things have dialed right yeah. back and guys are like, this, is, this isn't what I thought it would be um, and looking for motivation to, to, to continue on in the service. So you obviously said you flew for a bit there and it, what, it wasn't to be. What was, the, uh, what was the motivation then after that? Obviously, I know that in uh, obviously 1999, you, you spent some time with the JTAC and stuff like that. How easy was that program? Were you right there at the very beginning what, before there was uh, anything going on in Belgium? Were you part of the schoolhouse and the way they wrote the program? No, the thing is that uh, in the past, prior 99, uh, we had a necessity to have some folder controllers based on the uh, red-blue doctrine, you know, the, the, the eastern part fighting uh, the, the bad guys, uh, the Russians, I would say, like that. And uh, the people, they just went, because I, I talked with a couple of guys that were basically, one of them was my, my, my instructor, uh, one, of, one of the couple of uh, my first years in JTAC training. They just went to Fürstenfeldbruck. They did 12 low-level controls. 
uh, basically IP flight trains uh, with uh, alpha jets or uh, uh, sometimes if they were lucky, they got, they got a tornado. And then we didn't have any program in Belgium. So it was just, we sent people out in uh, Germany. They did a 12 control to get two, 12 uh, successful low-level controls and then they come back. Uh, when I joined in 99, it was the first year that they said, first of all, we're going to put NCOs in there just to have more, uh, basically, to add more value of the training and education. Because the officers we had in the past, they just went to person fabric. They've been, they, were, they were a fact, but they stay fact for two years. And then after two years, basically, they just changed position and basically no experience. And it was just by then, until 99, I would say, yeah, Mark 82 controls and gun control. In 99, when they start saying, okay, we're going to open the post to, uh, to NCOs, the first question arise was uh, basically, oh, it's a uh, dangerous position to open this up to a NCO. Luckily, one of the uh, fact, an old guy, he was a senior captain, and uh, he told me, you don't understand, it's pretty dangerous uh, because you don't know the responsibility you have to have an aircraft dropping bombs in uh, 500 meters from friendly forces. Luckily, I was four observers for the mortar, and we had uh, by then the uh, almost, I would call it the four inch two, almost 120 mic, mic mortars we had by then. And I was a forward observer. It was my, one of my of uh, my secondary job. And I tell him, I said, you know, Captain, if, if I need to drop mortars 120 mic, mic danger close, for me, what's the difference in the amount of having a single Mark 82, 500 pounds, of having a two minutes fire for effect, dropping 120 mic, mic rounds around the friendly forces. So, we still, they still become and said, okay, yeah, basically, yeah. So we, we need to have, uh, maybe we need to invest in, in guys doing this for a long time. So in the 99, we were three, three guys, basically, that uh, hook up uh, on the, uh, on the uh, Dutch uh, Agos uh, schoolhouse. And as from 2000, uh, the Belgian Ministry of Defense says, okay, we're going we're to invest in there. And so as from 2000, we sent one permanent instructor. So basically, first of all, a JTAC, and then we make him an instructor. And we, we are still running these days. We're still running the schoolhouse with the Dutch. Uh, we start initially in 99 based on the uh, NATO ATP. And uh, around, I would say, 2002, 2003, we drift away and we went to the MOA, although uh, keeping also currency requirements based on the NATO ATP. So we're doing both. And from both uh, doctrines, the NATO ATP or the uh, MOA, we're taking the more restrictive. So we are aligning our currency requirements on a six-month period. Uh, but if we see that uh, we still have some stuff that we need to uh, cross-check to be qualified in the NATO ATP, we, we did it. And we just, uh, we just uh, do a tick mark for that. But the priority is MOA for everybody. And we start like that. We didn't have any schoolhouse. Uh, and it's not a plan to have one. The system we have with the Dutch is... Uh, is fairly good. It's a very good system. In the build-up, when, when I started in 99, I had a, uh, a seven-week course, which was called a basic fact course. And then we went back to the unit for approximately six to seven months. And then we went back to the unit and we did the uh, advanced course. It was a two-week uh, period. Uh, what we noticed, and even Belgium and Netherlands, is that some guys didn't get a chance to have that much training opportunity. So basically, they reach a certain level at the end of the seven weeks, the basic uh, stuff. They hook up uh, back to the unit. And uh, yeah, if they were lucky, they got some air and they got some training. If they were unlucky, they didn't get any air and training. And it's still a uh, dual functions. 
to change it since last year. It's an exclusive function, so we have JTAC in the unit now. And uh, they changed that. And these days, since uh, two, three years now, we have a single course, which is uh, 13 weeks in a row. It's pretty heavy for the uh, JTAC students. It's pretty heavy for the schoolhouse as well, for the instructors. Uh, they managed to uh, add some, uh, uh, some additional training. If one of the guy halfway is losing weight or is losing his, uh, his uh, learning curve, expensive for inspectors but the, the results are there so that's basically how we start and how we build up the stuff the second takeaway of uh, the way changes in belgium is the uh, the evolution because when when i did my course in 99 in 2000 by the end of 2001 i became a jtac i and there was a requirement uh, since the new uh, currency requirements from the moa and the nato atp basically to up all those old guys from the first and fabric schoolhouse and we need to put them back in, up into speed and basically only one succeed because they had no clue about gps they had no clue about the medium high level they had no clue about laser integration no clue about the new smart weapons we had so they were still focused on you know single pass dropping six margarita two so low level and then uh, egressing and uh, and that, that was it so any changes and uh, luckily uh, good for us we had a good a good opportunity with the Dutch uh, and uh, the reason uh, looking to the MOA it's also opening up a lot of windows in the States when you look in the States we have much more facilities when we went to different training ranges in, in America because they know that we are basically following the MOA at first and then it opens up lots of doors yeah so obviously you're talking about the different operations that are running there what would you say across the theaters were the things that you saw, you know, that were hugely different? So, um, you know, Africa, you know, sort of Iraq and Afghanistan, what were the differences like between those operations as opposed like in air power sort of terms? Yeah, in the air power terms, uh, I would say for all the operations we are planning and doing for America, the uh, first uh, level of ambition for Belgium is uh, what we call NEO operations, non-combatant evacuation operations. So we, we have all, always a border control aspect of it, but it's not that often used. And we did a couple of uh, new operations in, you've probably seen it in the Congo, Rwanda, uh, the last uh, decade, but we never used CAS. The first time we start using CAS in operations was uh, when I was in the SF group, we went to a chart. Uh, and there in chart, it was, uh, it was your CAS uh, in a way that, uh, we did some operations and some training with the French Mirage there, and uh, we did some support operations with the French Mirage, but we have no threats. So it's pretty easy for the JTAC, no threats in there. Uh, it's pretty hard to identify targets because it's mainly desert and uh, smaller uh, villages, almost the same size and shape. Uh, while in Afghanistan and, uh, and Iraq, Jordan, and Syria, for the last days, was uh, much more uh, difficult, I would say, for JTAC. It was much more difficult for the officers and the uh, company commanders or the battalion commanders we were supporting. Uh, I would say when, when we did in, in Chad, uh, I, I remember in Chad, I was there, I, I did two tours of four months in Chad. Uh, luckily, it was a soft operation, so we were CG, uh, CG sort of at first, and then we went to a CG SOC. Uh, the good thing was, basically, we had a lot of operators from uh, 
non-JTAC countries, just like Austria and uh, I remember uh, Ireland. At first, JTAC was not qualified by then, and I gave him his final uh, qualification go there, at least a couple of controls there. And we had we did what we call uh, ECAST training in Incha, which was pretty good. Uh, in the operations, personally, that I, that I did as JTAC in, in Afghan, Luckily, I did one of the, the first JTAC operations in Afghan. I was in Kabul, in the central region. Uh, luckily, I was dedicated for a brigade. So I did a couple of uh, missions with the Germans. Uh, I did a couple of with the UK guys, uh, providing CCA training, what was also one of the requirements by then. Uh, luckily, the situation where I was there, it was 2000, 2001, was pretty quiet. So no big issues for IEDs and stuff like that. So Things we did with my buddy, we were two JTAGs by then, but uh, things we did with my buddy by then in 2000, 2001, probably I will, will not do the same way today because of these ID threats and the mentality that have been changed. That's, that's another stuff. And uh, but that's basically a big change. And what we noticed also is, and it's, it's a point we are suffering right now, is that we start building up new operations uh, in Africa uh, we probably will resume operations in the Middle East, uh, probably uh, one of these days, I don't know. But uh, we are suffering the lack of experience, uh, company commanders and battalion commanders. We we have a good luck for a period between, I would say, 2002 until, two, I would say, even later. But we had a good 10 years experience having, as you, as you have had in Herrick in, in Afghan and in, in Helmand region, we have a good flow of officers and NCOs passing by and knowing what CAS was and close air support and having that in interface with the uh, JTAC. But these days, we have new officers, new battalion uh, commanders, not their fault. Uh, I can imagine it's not their fault, but we are losing that experience. And uh, to come back to your question, I would say that the big difference between Africa and, uh, and Afghan is also noticed in the schoolhouse, because even in the schoolhouse right now, we have young instructors which have zero or almost zero experience. And so when we, all NCOs or all JTAC from, from the 99s or the 2000-2001 period that have been uh, in Africa and in Afghanistan or Middle East, when we came back to uh, the schoolhouse, we noticed that there's a big, a big, big gap there and a loss of experience. I don't know how we can extend that experience. I don't know how we can keep that experience in fact. But I mean, yeah, this is something we are suffering right now. Yeah, I think it's a, yeah, I think we've we've had this conversation a few times with a few different people, and I, you're hitting on some of the same points that we hear, which is which is good and bad. I mean, it's fantastic that we can all see them, and, and we're all highlighting them, so we can definitely obviously do something about it. But I think what we do is we keep people like obviously you're going to have done thirty some seven years of service. That's important, you know, and you know the guys who have the experience, the young JTACs that would you know doing their career in 2012, 2014-ish times, and they were gathering up that last little bit of experience. Those guys need to be invested in and dragged into the schoolhouses and, you know, rung for all their worth until the next operation comes around. Yeah. Um, I think that's sort of like the thing to highlight out of that one. What was your, uh, your favourite pl platform to have on station, Pierre? Well, basically, probably every JTAC will tell you an A10 is the best platform, but uh, I, will, I, will not, I will not agree with that. Uh, I, I find it great to have an A10 or a four-ship A10 on station. Uh, the only thing I, most of the time, my personal experience with the A10s is uh, 
if they have a young JTAC, which is not really aware of the capabilities of what a four ship can do, or even a two ship A10 can do, basically pilot will, will basically pull out the JTAC and it will basically do everything instead of the JTAC. So it will, it will advise the JTAC, it will set up a scenario for the JTAC, it will do everything for the JTAC, and yeah, basically the JTAC will, will not be in control anymore, if, if, you, if you see what I mean. So I'm happy to work with A10s, with a great platform, you can do anything. Uh, I love to work with the, uh, I would say, uh, uh, F-18, F-15 guys. Uh, I got a couple of chance to uh, work with the F-15s and the F-18 guys. Just because I have a shitload of ordnance. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'd like to work with the F-16 guys as well. Okay, Not because I'm in an F-16 squadron, but I, I like those guys and I like the capability the jets have. And uh, some squadrons I've seen, not only in Belgium, but also the... Uh, National Guard in the States, uh, I see a couple in, in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Netherlands, I see a couple of other guys in other countries. It, it, it's a nice platform. It's pretty, I would say it's really flexible. It can go quickly. Uh, it has a lot of uh, capabilities and certainly the last uh, days and when I'm still looking, I'm still working on the new uh, upgrades we're going to have in the fu near future. I'm pretty convinced it's a good platform. Uh, I like... The bombers as well. Uh, in specific circumstances, I like the bomber as well. Uh, uh, I like to have that guy pretty cool behind the screen and uh, Falcon View in the back of his, uh, in, in the back is in big sofa. I, I remember I was in Afghan and guy, it was snowing. I still have uh, one of my Roma taking picture. I was basically in my, in my beef bag, looking on my map and radio and having just a sort picture of what's happening down there. Just a real picture and and I remember the guys asking me, hey, guys, uh, just uh, another layer of clouds there. How's it? And I said, yeah, it's just snowing, but I see some stuff and we, we need to, uh, to go in. And the guy says, I'm in my sofa as well. I like that. So definitely, <laughs> if, if I have to make a selection, I would say fixed-wing jets, just like F-18, F-16, if they can carry more. Uh, and we see in training right now, uh, since last year, we start to train a lot with uh, GU-39s and... Uh, Gives us yeah eight bombs instead of two twelves over over twelve and thirty eight or the fifty four, so we, we can start to make a better uh, scenario, train better. We can train better having threat and stuff like that. Uh, the only thing is that what I noticed with the A ten is that if you have a Fake on board a four ship or the two ship, it will it will pull you out and it will make it will be the uh, it will be the lead. And I notice that every time we have young JTAC in. In the U.S., when you go on training there, I see that every time happening. Yeah, it's something to be aware of, and I think yeah. JTAC eyes just need to be alive to that and make sure their guys are briefed, yeah. you know, appropriately. But yeah, it's it's a wonderful platform if it's managed correctly, and they they're just so will co that mm -hmm. uh, they're just trying to you know do, help you out. They don't realize that they're uh, sometimes you know dominating the situation. Uh, yeah, how's things set up? I know, obviously, you've seen what our school hands to its students in in the form of the little booklet that we give them for a set of cribs now which didn't exist sort of when i was going through we we sort of were jumping you know we were pulling in and making our own cribs up how did you run your business and how do you run your business now with like a set of cribs or a notebook how do you how do you work when you're jtacking when i'm jtacking i always have my notebook so i I would say I make an evolution. So I have a, a digital uh, aid, to be honest. I have a digital aid. <clears throat> but I still have my old notebook, which is almost full right now. But I always keep my <laughs> old notebook. And 
I just use in a reverse way, in a way that I have on uh, on one side. When I typically on one side, I have all my uh, I would say important stuff. So it's for radio stuff, it's for tactics, it's for TDPs, it's for everything. And then when I turn the book around, I'm just writing everything in down. So basically, I just okay, the aircraft checks in, I'm writing down, and I do all my admin and I do all my different controls. Basically, because it's my it's my only way to be able to provide a decent report after the mission. So I write everything down. So even if I have yeah. some nice goodies, digital stuff, you know what I mean? I can look at it. I can. I will use it definitely because I'm not stupid. If I have something to help me out, I will use it. But even a nine line, I'm always writing down a nine line because a tablet, a phone, whatever can go out of battery. So I'm writing down everything. And I'm always using a map and I'm still always using an old compass. So in my jacket, I always have an old compass just of my first orienteering. And uh, my first orientation, I just look at my map, and everything I have, I plug into my map. Luckily, we have access to 25,000 maps, so I try to print as much as I can maps, paper maps. And yeah, basically, if I need to bring, if I know that I will have three hours of uh, cast, I will bring maybe for each slot a new map, so I'm able to track on my map, and I will plot everything in there. At the end, if I give you the map, you won't be able to read it. You will see some <laughs> things. Basically, I would keep it, and I have my book. And at the end, when I came back in the unit, I, I'm, I'm able to pick up my book, to send an email to the pilot and say, hey, look, this is what happened. That was not good. I did this wrong, or you did that wrong, or I may have, might be able to do so. So it's, it's pretty nice. Uh, I know we have a lot of electronics going on, and uh, you know I have been in schoolhouse as well. We have a lot of stuff, but yeah, you, you need to stick to basic. And, and I would say by sticking to basic, using a map, a compass, and in paper, nothing can go wrong. If you are able to plot all your friendlies, all your threats, and and, and all your targets on the paper map, and if you draw just a line for, say, you know, okay, I have a gun target line, or I have a, a heading I would like to use, basically, if you put everything on the paper, it's much more easy than trying to, you know, punching in grids of the friendlies, or an icon, or drawing a line, everything. I think it's pretty quick on the map. So basic skills are still there and need to be there, I think. Yeah, 100%. I know it's a, a bit more of a lighthearted thing. It, it keeps uh, coming up, but uh, I know that it certainly was the case for me when I came over to JTAC. But is it true that all JTACs only hydrate on black coffee and whiskey? Is that Does that translate over? No, I, I would say I, I like black coffee. I'm drinking black coffee. I put, I put honey in there, to be honest, instead of sugar. So... <laughs> <laughs> it's healthy, but uh, I mean, yeah, I, I can drink a good a good glass of whiskey as well. Uh, but uh, I think we can we can drink uh, something else as well. So we have no restrictions. So in, I, I mean, in Belgium, we we rather like to have uh, more beer than whiskey. Uh, probably, I like. I know that pilots like to drink a uh, whiskey, but I, I know that uh, JTAX, Every time we organize an exercise, yeah, basically we have beer. So yeah, <laughs> and we have plenty of beers in Belgium. Uh, so. Any recommendations for a Belgian beer that people should be looking out for? Yeah, I would say, personally, I recommend Orval, which is one of my favorites. I have more than 300 in my uh, cellar, because you can keep them for many years. So you can keep them for a couple of years. So all the Trappists, Chimay, Rochefort, Orval are very good beers. But we have so many that it will be pretentious to my side to say this one is the best one, because there's plenty of them. <laughs> Just spend a lifetime trying to figure out yeah. which one's the best. <laughs> yes. So if you, uh, 
if you could go back and maybe speak to yourself at the start of your career or speak to a young guy and like actually get through to them, what would be the three things that you'd want to say to that to yourself or to that person and have it actually stick? I'm not talking about stuff they're gonna learn, but stuff, you know, turn up day one and be ready with these things. And you mean somebody who wants to be DJ tactic? Yeah, yeah. So turning up day one at the basic course. We will teach you these things, so don't worry about that. But like, what should they turn up, you know, preloaded with? Yeah, I, I would, I would preload it. I would uh, recommend that um, is a hundred percent confident map reading. Uh, it helps a lot if that guy, for example, what I did, I'm still doing it. I'm still orienteering, so I'm still running orienteering courses and uh, and, and tracks, uh, participating competitions in the in the armed forces. And I, I mean, map reading is the basic. So if the guy is, if the guy has a hundred percent understanding of map reading, plotting something, not only is on position, but be able to pretty quickly look in the train and be able to uh, plot something in there, uh, it's probably the main the, the main thing. Using a map and a compass and be able to plot uh, something on the map. Uh, I would recommend to prepare using radios, because what 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 I noticed in the last years is we. We have more and more waveforms, more and more communications channels, communication assets, and I would recommend to work to work uh, on the uh, on the radio part. So having a good knowledge of uh, on comms. Uh, yeah, coming back on map, maybe have a little bit of knowledge of uh, GPS as well, because okay, if you know very good map readings, and then if you know a little bit very good your GPS, you are sometimes more able to uh, plot you know project a waypoint somewhere in a GPS. Based on the range finder measurement of the thing, uh, and I basically, I would, I would say it needs to be physically trained. But as, as I said, I, I did my last eval, and uh, you basically you were webbing your helmet, your radio, your backpack, and everything. Even if it's an eval, it lasts about uh, one hour, one hour, fifteen minutes. So you need to be basically fit. And overall, over three, I would say you need to be humble. And humility is probably, uh, I would say personally. After doing this for more than 20 years, I would say humility is the most important thing you need to have because you are learning every every day. And as I said, I start Mark 82s. I know we are working SDB2, new smart weapons, new goodies, new sensors, new digital stuff. So telling one day, no, I'm a JTAC, no, I know everything about it, you're a liar. It's it's not <laughs> it's definitely it's not good, and you're still doing mistakes. And and, and be, be, be humble. Uh, try to came back to pilot. I got a chance to be a GLO and, and JTAC IE in, in a squadron, which, which is a good thing. And, and I think it's a kind of a path that we are looking at in Belgium, is having our JTACs getting the chance to become GLO if they can in a squadron. Because then you know the side of JTAC, you know the side of pilot, then you can have that humility fit chat and telling him, hey, sir, I did this wrong. Or, hey, sir, I did this. You didn't cross check. I didn't mention the friendly 200 meters. We didn't come back that it was danger close or whatever. So humility is overall over the three the three uh, domain you asked me. I would say humility remains as, as set. You're never gonna be. Yeah, like, you will never be a good CS or a good comms guy because it evolves every time. GPS map reading, yeah, maybe well. Although new GPS are also evolving. Right? When you look uh, from a uh, a big plugger going to a dagger and then four tracks you can have on your on your wrist. And then, uh, and I would say physically, yeah, basically you need to start physically with, when you are 18, it's fine, but 
when you see my age, 56. <laughs> okay, you need to maintain that. So humidity is basically overarching uh, the free the free part. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What if there was one myth that you hear a lot <clears throat> about the community? What would it be, and and how would you dispel it? What do you mean by the myth? A myth, as in, like, I don't know, you know, um, like I was saying, you know, all JTACs only drink coffee or anything like that. Uh, it's a good question. I would, I would say, again, I would say the, the myth we had, or we still have right now, is there is one myth by the officers that don't have any experience on the field. They would say, hey, the JTAC is the guy who's going to do everything for me, which is not reality because uh, it's an interaction between the ground force commander and the JTAC. Uh, there is probably a myth uh, that, uh, yeah, they have uh, so different equipment, different goodies, and they're carrying uh, different uh, stuff. Uh, some, some officers can uh, argue with that. They said, oh, this, this is the myth of JTAC, they're carrying all the goodies and nice uh, new gear, new, uh, new stuff. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't, at least in Belgium, I never experienced stuff, stuff like that. Maybe because I was, I, I used to be low profile and humble. Uh, you know, my nickname is Ice. They call me Ice. That's, that's a nickname I get from the schoolhouse. And they said, because when I'm doing my work, when I'm J-tacking, I never laughing. And I said, like, J-tacking is not laughing. J-tacking is <laughs> serious business. So even in training, I'm, I'm not J-tacking, I'm, I'm, I'm not laughing. So I'm just keeping that tracking that uh, and it, it's, it's still the same the same that happens these days when we're doing all the, the new experience with the focus experience and uh, testing a gifty aided cast and working on new technology they said hey man once you are in your stuff you're in your stuff so yeah yeah i, mean, yeah. I like that what uh, if you look back obviously you probably have quite a few of them but what's uh is there a funny story that like sticks out for you in your career you know um, something that went wrong or somebody did something that you always sticks out or always comes up when you guys like get back together? Uh, let me think. L luckily, from all, from all the kinetics I did, I never get something wrong. But, uh, well, I, I, I remember in, in Romania, to give an example, uh, we, we, we need to test it was just on halfway between the old pack course and the new, the new course. And we had to test the, uh, the uh, Airburst, 38 Airburst uh, weapons. It was the first time. And uh, that was one of the funniest. Uh, we had the, uh, the two ship and one of the guy has to drop the uh, six, uh, six uh, Mark 82s and the next one has to drop the uh, Airburst. And basically, he forgot to arm the switch. So the uh, funny thing was that uh, basically it was dead. It, just entered the uh, floor in Romania. And then I had a question from uh, the range safety officer and he says, what's the validation time for the fuse? When will be the fuse neutralized? So I, said, <laughs> so I have no fucking clue. So I was a bit surprised. Uh, it was more than 30 hours. The other funny <laughs> stuff we had is, uh, <clears throat> and I think if the Belgian JTACs will uh, listen to me, they, they probably will, will remember that one. We were in France, in Corsica. And, uh, we do have, I think, in total, three female JTAC in the Belgian Armed Forces. And one of that uh, female JTAC was uh, with us in uh, Corsica in France. It was his first exercise after the, the, the schoolhouse. 
And we were on a range, in Diana range, which is basically facing the sea. And she had two Rafale to uh, do uh, some uh, controls. And the Rafale were coming with uh, guns and a BDU. And the first uh, pass needs to be uh, guns. So basically, I was there, revising uh, with another uh, instructor on the OP. So she did everything perfectly. So she says, OK, 5.4 guns, blah, blah, blah. Everything was uh, sweet. And basically, when the aircraft came in, okay, got the visual, continue, she get a clearance, and we saw the two fuel tanks falling from the Rafale straight <laughs> into the sea. So basically, she looked at us, and she says, I don't understand, did I something wrong? And, I, and, and we looked at her, and we said, no, you, you can put the successful control in your book. Put the successful control. Commander's intent is met, you blew up with the fuel and uh, instead of guns and bullets, but... I mean, that, that was, was probably one of the funny things I saw. Uh, <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> I, I got plenty, plenty of experience having, uh, you know, a uh, little bit arrogant pilot uh, doing a DA cast, digitally edited cast. The basics, we did FAPD back in the years in Canada, doing a nipple flag. And uh, the guy was a major, and uh, there was a uh, woman, a 15 uh, pilot, which was the uh, wingman. And uh, we were doing uh, DA cast uh, messages, exchanges. And everything was okay with the uh, women, with the lady, which was a second lieutenant. And with the major, we had nothing, no comms, no mess, no nothing. So we land back, uh, basically, we came back in a uh, neighbor flag in Goose Bay there. And uh, <coughs> when we came back in uh, in neighbor flag uh, staff buildings, uh, she was tasked to come again with us in the major jet to see if everything was working, and everything was working. So. You know, at the end, he came back and the major says, okay, grab a beer. So these are the kinds of story I have. So the most funniest I have. So, yeah. yeah, that's good. I like that. I like the fact that the, the jet went back up and worked. That's that's the kind of stuff where you're like, you get a little tick and you're like, yeah, I'm happy with that. That makes yeah. me feel a little bit better about it all. I know you talked about a lot of changes that you've seen and specifically the, the equipment, but in that, you know, obviously that's a long period of time to serve, you know, over 30 years. What's been the biggest sort of change, broader, the broader change that you've seen in that time? The broader change I've seen is uh, radios. Because uh, I, I don't know if you remember, but I started using uh, Tabiro, which was an uh, Israeli radio, UHF. We went to PRC-113. Then we went to, uh, when I deployed the first time Afghan, I had the uh, 117 Foxtrot. And now we have the one. 117 Gold and uh, the 152 uh, Alpha. At the same time, what I see is the wide array of waveforms and different communications that are basically now on a JTAC shoulder. In the past, we just had a UHF and a VHF, optionally sometimes an FM frequency for the ground force uh, net, but now we have everything. We have SATCOMs, and SATCOM is not only dedicated, it starts with the IW SATCOM channels, DAMA, whatever. Uh, UHF, okay, now we are looking for half-quick and we are starting Saturn. So everything is changing in there. Uh, I saw a lot of uh, <coughs> digital uh, kits coming around, okay, so having those guys carrying tablets and uh, and uh, just the kit we have, Firestorm, which was a big piece of gear, and uh, we, we talked a lot about, about it, and uh, we have pro and contrast, uh, I know for sure. The thing is that in the last 10 years, we have a, such an evolution, just like our grandparents have had, seeing a bicycle to an uh, electric car. So when I talk to my mother, which is uh, 83, 
she tells me I was born, we had the first cars. And now I see Tesla electronic car. And in between, I've seen all these. And the last 10 years, I've seen such a huge jump. Uh, again, I come back to what I said previously, that huge jump in new technologies and new uh, tools and new gears, it's good, but you don't have to drift away from the basics. And I come yeah. back to the basics, is your map, your compass, mentally, health, and physically fit. And then basically the rest is just add-ons and will help you out. Yeah, that leads me nicely into, if you were a, if you were a desert island JTAC, so I'm going to put you on a desert island, but you still got to function as a JTAC, I give you a radio, I give you a set of ANSILs, headset, antenna. Um, but what other three items would you take with you? Uh, basically, if, I, if I'm somewhere isolated, I definitely wear the compass with me. I will keep my other maps uh, and the radios. So I'm, this is basically the key elements to be able to work with. And uh, yeah, I would I probably will add a bino. So okay. we have a binos. <laughs> Yeah, it's a rangefinder tool, but I, I mean, yeah, you, you know, with my eyes, you see I have glasses right now. <laughs> in the past, I, I was not always uh, in need to wear my glasses, but now I see more and more. Okay, but basically, binos is also some good stuff. You need to, uh, to watch out, not only for target, but, uh, you know, you drop your bomb, and you need to assess uh, what the effect is. And if it's 3K away, you cannot assess if you don't have any good binding. So, and Thing I have these are the basic things I still have these days. I always have my notebook, I have my compass, maps, and binos. And then the rest, okay, I have a 152, I connect it. I have a striker or a VDL receiver, I connect it. I have a backpack with another radio, that's fine. The basic, it's on me, and I will never, never want to touch it. And a good box of cigars. And a big good box of what, sorry? Of cigars. <laughs> Roger. Um, <laughs> Mate, I appreciate you coming on, Pierre, but if you were to have one closing thought to the entire community, and I know obviously you're in a great position of being a glow and stuff like that, but, you know, air crew, JTACs, you know, forward observers, everybody, what would that message be? I would say JTAC, air crew, ground force commander, we are a team. And I would say humility, stay humble, is the key to success. Yeah. And have a good box of cigars. Yeah. <laughs> Roger that. Okay. Thank you so much, Pierre. I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been been really good. Yeah, you're welcome. Hope it works fine because I'm not always as good with all these. Thank you, and I appreciate you taking the time to listen. All our podcasts sit on the Nine Foot Night Killer Collective, Soul Feed, Forge Not Made, and the JTAP podcast. Take some time, maybe listen to one of the other podcast series that you're not listening to and give us your feedback. All these things only happen because of the Nine Foot Night Killer community, and we really appreciate them. Thank you, everybody, for listening.